0: and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Let's see, references to Frank Sinatra, Def Leppard, Tupac, and T-Top Trans Ams. We look at whether or not Jesus lied to his brothers. We get a new word. Oh, and don't forget the red pants. You know you're in for a treat, and you'll want the video when we get a visit from Leon's Crump, pastor of Renovation Church in Atlanta, who brings us this message entitled Spectacularization which covers John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. Thanks for joining us today.
1: All right. Good morning. Listen, I don't have time to retrain you how to talk during a sermon. So if you've been here with me before, get your neighbor's heart prepared to have a dialogical conversation about the gospel. Uh, My name is Leonce, pastor of Renovation Church, and uh, thank you guys for having me if you don't know me. uh, I want to tell you a couple things before we jump in, and while I'm talking, you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 7, uh, if you have it, John chapter 7. Uh, I don't have time to share everything amazing that God has done in two and a half years, but I feel like I should share something with you because you have been uh, a vital part of the life of Renovation Church and an incredible blessing Uh, connecting the suburbs to the city. So I'll just share three things with you. One, uh, in two and a half years, uh, we have seen uh, over 100 conversions and baptized nearly 150 people, okay? It's been a beautiful work of God. (laughs) Two, two, this past Easter, uh, we broke 700 in attendance. Uh, And I couldn't even believe it, couldn't fathom it. Now, I know that only fits in the hangar here, but for two and a half years, that's good work in downtown Atlanta. And the third thing... Uh, yeah amen, uh, and the third thing is, and, and this is the biggest deal uh, for us right now, uh, two Fridays ago, we went under contract for our own building, twenty three thousand square feet in downtown Atlanta, uh, where a renovation will call home so a lot uh, a lot has happened in a short amount of time and uh, and God has been gracious. And you have been a vital part of that work. And so uh, every time I come, I want to thank you. And thank you for being faithful in your giving and your praying, uh, especially for those who partnered with us in significant ways. Uh, We could not have done what we've done and seen what God has done uh, without your work. So John chapter 7, if you got it, say, I got it. All right, we're only going to read five verses. I know it says 1 through 24, and you're wondering how I'm going to do that in 30 minutes. It's going to be magic. Just watch it happen, okay? Uh, We're going to read the first five, though. Read it with me. Uh, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He did not wish to go about in Judea because the Jewish authorities, it says the Jews, the Jewish authorities were looking for an opportunity to kill him. Wow. Uh, Now, the Jewish festival of booths was near, and so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one who wants to be widely known, underline that, acts in secret. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And here's John's little note here. This is very conspicuous and purposeful. Please don't miss it in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. If you would, pray for me. I'm going to pray for you. And we're going to ask God to meet us here this morning. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to be in the house of the Lord. What a joy it is to sit under the uh, word of God and underneath the gospel. What a joy it was to sing songs about your faithfulness. What it teach our hearts truth. And what a joy it will be when you convince us today that you are God and God alone and there is none like you. Set this man aside and move our hearts this morning, Holy Spirit, to see the beauty that you are. We ask it in Christ's name and all God's children said, amen. So I want you to imagine that we're having a conversation in a coffee shop. That's how we're going to start. I want you to imagine that we're sitting across the table from one another, and I say to you that that every one of us, me, you, all people, have an issue with unbelief. Regardless of where your walk is with Jesus, regardless of how long you would say you've been a believer, regardless of how many mission trips that you've been on, regardless of how high your tithe dollars are or how much you serve or how much you read your Bible, that every single person in here walking with Jesus or not struggles with unbelief. What would you say? Would you argue back with me? Would you try to convince me of the validity of your faith? Would you give me the tally of all the wonderful things that you've done for God? Would you tell me that you're sitting in the service every single week and you're singing to the top of your lungs despite being Presbyterian? What would you say to me? I love you rebels. I love you rebel Presbyterians. I heard you back there. Arms high was a beautiful thing. What, what would you say to me? Would you try and and make sure I understood? No, I don't struggle with unbelief. Well, I would say to you that you're wrong. Sorry. Because the reality is that, that the reason we have... Uh, difficulty following Jesus faithfully. And the reason that that we have difficulty seeing the scriptures clearly and the reason that we have difficulty trusting God fully is not because it's hard, even though sometimes it is. And and it's not because like I tell myself all the time that I'm simply a screw up and I just can't get it right. That's the lie that I believe that the enemy whispers in my ears. And it's not because we don't have enough knowledge because most of us know enough to last us a lifetime about Jesus. The issue at the end of the day is unbelief whether you follow Jesus or not whether you would say you're a faithful believer or not whether you say that you that you trust God with everything or not the primary reason we struggle to love God the primary reason we struggle to obey God the primary reason we struggle to serve God at the end of the day is unbelief you see ultimately and I want you to think about this for two or three seconds Whatever issue you have with God, whatever that issue is, we all have a little issue with God. Otherwise, we'd be perfect. And unless you walked here on water, then you're not perfect. Whatever issue you have with God, underneath that issue is ultimately unbelief. Unbelief is underneath every single issue we have with God. Now, hang on to that. Because what is somewhat fascinating about it and what we're going to see here in a minute in, in three scenes, and this is what I want to do with this, these 24 verses. I'm going to break them up like movie scenes so, so that we see how unbelief presents itself. But here's, here's what's fascinating about unbelief is that uh, it presents itself in three distinct ways. Maybe more, but only three here in this text. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to take a few minutes. There are three groups of people here. If you want to write them down, if you're a notes person, which all of you are. Listen, I, I, I conceded that a long time ago, okay? About, about a third, maybe even close to half of, of my church is Anglo and Presbyterian. And so I realized that instead of shouting amen like all of the ethnic minority people, they just take notes. That's their amen, right? So, so I'm hammering. I'm preaching. God is good. And they're like, <laughs> to me. So I'm okay with that. So if you don't want to shout this morning, take good notes. I'll know you're amen (laughs) There's three groups of people here. Three groups of people in view. I want you to write them down. Number one is Jesus' brothers. That's the first group of people we're going to look at. Number two, number, oh, somebody, all right. Number two is the crowd that has come to the festival, to the party. And number three is the Jewish authorities. Every one of them is having an issue with unbelief, every single one of them, but it all manifests itself differently. And what I want you to do today, I want you to be honest with yourself. And I want you to see which one of these groups of people you connect with at your lowest place. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I'm going to keep saying that because I think sometimes we follow Jesus for for a period of time and we believe that unbelief has just died in our souls. But at the end of the day, anytime you sin, anytime you rebel, anytime you struggle, it's not because you can't, it's because you don't believe. You don't believe God. And we want to believe God so that we can see God clearly. And so I want you to look at all three groups of people, and I want you to see where you connect to one of these groups of people. Because the bottom line here is this. John's desire in these few verses is to show us how unbelief manifests itself. But it's also to show us the good news of how Jesus is ready, willing, desirous to meet our unbelief with the hope of the gospel. Okay? So let's walk it out. That means uh, walk through the verses. All right? Starting in verse 1. John writes, after this, okay, which was about six months have passed since John chapter six. I don't have to go time to go into unpacking everything, but after he had done the miracle of of the fish and the bread, if you know your Bible, after uh, he had said some very, very crazy things to his disciples, like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Like, can you imagine what that moment is like? Like, wait, what, what did he say? I, I thought we were ordering pizza. What? Wait a minute. You know, I I don't know what that conversation was like. But after half of his disciples, uh, more than half of his disciples have left him at the end of chapter 6, after this, John writes that that Jesus went about in Galilee, we've already talked about this, because he couldn't go to Judea. Why couldn't he go to Judea? Because the Jewish authorities were trying to kill him. Why were they trying to kill him? Well, you got to look back to John chapter 5, because Jesus performed a miracle where he healed a guy who had been paralyzed for 38 years. That's a reason to kill somebody, right? Ridiculous. Okay, so Jesus has healed this man. They're trying to kill him. He's in, uh, in his hometown, not willing to go to Jerusalem. And then John puts in another note in verse two, and the face of booths was upon them. Now, here's why this is important, and it's gonna circle back. The festival of booths was the biggest party of the year for Jews, okay? If you're young enough, you know what I'm talking about next. It was like Jewish Bonnaroo, all right? Yeah, see, there's like 12 of y'all. Don't let your children go to Bonnaroo. Bad things happen there, okay? It was like Jewish Bonnaroo. Biggest celebration of the year. Thousands of people would come from all over the province, all over the uh, uh, Roman-controlled land, from the diaspora, from the rural areas, from the city. Thousands of Jews would converge for the Festival of Booths. And this is important because what we see in verse 3 is Jesus, his brothers say what to him? Go to the festival. And show your disciples the works that you are doing. For no one who wants to be widely known acts in secret. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. You see that big if there? If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John adds his little note that we already read together in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. You see, so real was Jesus' humanity before he started his earthly ministry. So genuine was his humanity before he started his earthly ministry that his own brothers did not know that they had grown up with the Savior of the world. I mean, can you imagine? You find out later that you, you know, wedgie the Savior of the world when he was like eight. I'd be like, please don't kill me. Just don't touch my heart and make it stop beating. I'm sorry. We were eight. I didn't know any better. You know. I don't know how those conversations went. But so real was Jesus' humanity that they could not see his divinity. Now, what are we getting at here? This is what I want you to see. This is the first form of unbelief. Well, how do you get that, Leon? Well, I'm going to tell you. You see, they were not hung up on Jesus' miracles. They, They were cool with that. That's why they wanted him to go to the biggest party in the world and show himself off. That's why they wanted him to go to the biggest celebration, thousands of people, and make a name for himself. And it was rooted in their unbelief. John just told us. And I made up a word for this occasion. You ready? It's called spectacularization. We can do that in the city. We make up words. Spectacularization. Say that with me. Spectacularization. Spectacularization. Don't teach that to your children, okay? This is the first form of unbelief that we see in scene one. You see, this form of unbelief is the unbelief of those who, if God doesn't do something big and if God doesn't do something amazing and if God doesn't do something miraculous and if God doesn't prove that he's God the way I want him to prove that he's God, then I struggle to believe that he's God. You tracking with that? Is that making sense? You see, they were okay with the miracles. They wanted him to go and do the miracles. They wanted him to go and show off and and show how powerful he was and maybe win back the disciples that left him at the end of chapter 6. They wanted him to go and put on a spectacle so that all the people could see his power. And guess what? By proxy, they would be exalted and elevated as well. This is the unbelief of those who Believe in God as long as they are elevated and entertained. Now, I know it's a little heavy, but, but some of us struggle with that. We believe as long as we see God doing uh, big things that, that are defining moments in our lives. We believe as, as, as long as we can imagine God being spectacular for us. The mundane nature of faith, the day-to-day nature of faith, the discipline of reading the scriptures, the discipline of walking it out, the discipline of believing the gospel, the discipline of wrestling with the hard truths of scripture. No, no, no. we don't want to be bothered with that. It's when God is amazing, when God is spectacular, when God is phenomenal. Yes, I believe. And if he ever ceases to be that the way that I want him to be that, then I have trouble believing. Spectacularization. Now, judging by the size of this crowd, I'd say there's at least a a third of us in here who struggle with that. You struggle with that. Maybe you're not looking for a miracle, but but maybe you're looking for an answered prayer. And when God answers your prayer, he's fantastic. And when you feel like he's not listening, you don't know if you can trust him. God's got to be spectacular in order for you to believe. And that's why John sneaks this little note here in in verse 5. Because he doesn't want you to be confused for one second and think that that their desire to see Jesus do miracles is is really some form of belief. No, no. It's rooted in unbelief because his brothers, Jesus' brothers' relationship with Jesus is purely based on the works that he can do, not the worth of his person. Am I speaking a foreign language or are you tracking with that? I know, I'm so forceful. Pastor Randy's so kind. I'm not angry, I'm just very excitable. Okay, y'all gotta know that. I'm just glad I'm not sweating. It's so hot in our school that I sweat through my clothes every single week. It's pretty pitiful. But it's spectacularization. I'll give you an example. Several years ago, I was counseling a young man and he said to me, and some of you are gonna like You're going to know this as soon as I say it. He said, God feels so far right now. Who's felt that way? Of course you have. He feels so far away. And as I began to press and I began to pry and I began to dig underneath, everything that he was saying, what continued to surface over and over and over again was this. That when God was being amazing in his estimation of amazing, When God was being spectacular in his estimation of spectacular, then he felt close to God. But when God wasn't responding in the time that he wanted him to and answering in the time that he wanted him to and being the way that he wanted him to be, then God felt far away. It's spectacularization. This is the form of unbelief found in those who go from youth camp to youth camp. You know, some of you have been through that. You bought a whole bunch of CDs that you shouldn't have listened to. You went to youth camp, you burned all your CDs. You left youth camp, you went and bought them again. You know you did that. Driving down the street, listening to Deaf Leopard and the Trans Am crying because you want to love Jesus better. Yes, that was you. There's a guy in the back covering his face right now. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. This is spectacularization. It was a spectacular experience at youth camp. It was a high in the worship service. It was a high at the conference, and God was amazing. But when I left, he felt far. He felt far. Now, I don't want to belabor that, so we're going to move on, okay? We're going to move on. Verse 6, Jesus' response to them is filled with meaning, helping us understand how he operated then and how God operates now. He says to them, uh, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. So Jesus is not interested in self-exaltation. He is not interested in self-exaltation. He's only interested in what God wants him to do. And so he tells them in verse 8, go to the festival yourselves. I am not going to this festival for my time has not yet fully come. Verse 9 tells us that Jesus remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone to the festival, then he also went, not publicly, but as it were, in secret. Now, this is a little bit of an aside because the first time I read that, I was like, did Jesus just tell a lie? I thought the Bible said that God is not a man, that he should lie, right? Jesus didn't lie here, okay? And I'm going to do this often, but the Greek underneath him saying he's not going is, I'm not going right now. Why? Because you can go whenever you want to go because you're not directed by the hand of God. I'm directed by the hand of God, so I can only go when he tells me to go. Okay, that's just a little aside. I don't want you to think Jesus was lying to his brothers. All right? But this sets up our second scene and our second form of unbelief. Look down in verse 11. At the festival, a.k.a. Jewish Bonnaroo, uh, the Jewish authorities were looking for Jesus and saying, where is he? And there was also a massive crowd here. We've already covered this. Uh, Thousands of people made up of Judeans and Galileans and other Jews who knew who Jesus was, who were curious about who Jesus was and clearly divided in their opinions of him. Verse 12 tells us that there was considerable complaining about him among the crowds. This is our second group of people. Some were saying he is a good man, while others were saying, no, he is deceiving the crowd. Now, you're smart people. What is the nature of their unbelief? Are they excited about God doing miracles, about Jesus doing a miracle? No. Are they particularly interested in how awesome Jesus can be for them? No. No. What they've done is form an opinion of Jesus based on whatever information they could gather without actually knowing who he is, what he's doing, or why he's functioning the way that he is in the world. This is the form of their unbelief. These two different crowds Half are confused, the other half are cynical. And that's the second form of our unbelief confusion slash skepticism. See, they'd obviously heard enough about this rural Galilean preacher to form an opinion. Does this sound familiar? They'd, they'd obviously heard enough about him to, to form an idea of what he was about and to form an idea of what he desired and to form an idea of what he was doing and to form an idea of why the Jewish authorities were trying to kill him, but they did not actually know him. What grieves my heart, there are so many people sitting in worship gatherings all over this nation, week after week after week. And they formed an opinion about Jesus. And they formed an idea about Jesus. An amalgamation of of bad street preaching and, and Discovery Channel documentaries about how he was a part of the Illuminati or whatever craziness they say on television about Jesus. They formed an opinion about him. They don't really know who he is. And that's where some of us are as well. We we formed an opinion about Jesus, but we haven't explored him for ourselves. We formed an opinion about Jesus, but, but we don't know who he really is. We formed an opinion about Jesus, but we don't know him intimately. We formed an opinion about Jesus, but we don't worship him as Lord. We're just confused and skeptical. At one extreme, it may produce a doubt of God's existence altogether. At another extreme, it may produce doubt about his desire to interact with us and what he's doing in the world. And though it would be logical to think that this form of unbelief is mostly produced from logic, it's not. It's mostly produced from emotion, driven by hurt and circumstance driven by a desire to try to put god in a box and understand how he works even though he works outside of space and time it's mostly driven by an emotional reaction to god not producing so we form an opinion we become skeptical or confused And please don't sit there and think, well, this probably just applies to those who aren't yet following Jesus. No, no, no. No, this applies to those who are following Jesus as well. And it mostly comes out in tragedy. Mostly comes out in difficulty. I'll give you another example. Uh, 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 Some of you know this and some of you don't, but me and my wife were discussing it the other day. Several years ago, uh, in 2010, she was diagnosed uh, with multiple sclerosis. And she responded in grace, and she responded with praise, and it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. But, but what, what most of you don't know, even if you know she was diagnosed then, is that that was more of a re-diagnosis. She, she was actually diagnosed the first time in 2001. And as we were talking through this text last week, she, she said, you know, that's the form of unbelief that I had the first time I was diagnosed with MS. I was, I was confused as to why God would do this to me. I'd been faithful for him. I'd worshiped him since I was a child. I'd always served. I'd always been good. I'd always obeyed. Why would he do this to me? It was a form of unbelief she struggled with in the midst of tragedy. She wondered what God's intentions were for her and why he would allow something so horrible to happen to someone Who had loved him so well. You see, this is the danger of having a transactional relationship with God quid pro quo. He does for me, I obey him, all is right in the world until I obey him and he doesn't do what I expect him to do. And then it produces skepticism it produces confusion. Now, the second time in 2010, she handled it marvelously. And I don't, I don't have time to go into that. I, on the other hand, did not handle it so well. And I'll touch on that here in a moment. But the bottom line is, some of you are there right now. Can I ask you at the beginning, where are you in these three groups of people? Some of you are there right now. You have an opinion of Jesus because you've never sought to actually be informed about who he is. Or you follow Jesus for some time, but, but but you've become skeptical of his intentions and you've become skeptical of his desires and you've become doubtful and confused about who he is and what he's doing because he's not responding the way you want him to respond. It's unbelief. And that's what we see here in the crowd. They don't understand. So they form an opinion. They can't see clearly, so they form an opinion. Where are you? Looking for a spectacular God? Or confused about his intentions because He has not operated the way that you desired him to? Which one are you? Maybe you're in the third group of people with me. This is not a good group to be in. Verse 13 tells us that though the crowds were confused, no one would speak openly about Jesus for fear of the Jewish authorities. You see, John has already made it plain in the opening that the Jewish authorities were trying to kill Jesus. They wanted to eliminate him. They, they scorned him and were exasperated with him. And apparently the, their hostility, their, their anger... Had produced uh, uh, an atmosphere where Jesus could not even be spoken of without fear of retribution. And that's our third form of unbelief it's hostility. I told you you didn't want to be in that group, it's hostility. Their their displeasure with Jesus had boiled over to affect the entire atmosphere of the festival. And their, their hostility is further exposed in this interchange between them and Jesus that starts in verse 14. It says, about the middle of the festival, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Now, the content of what he taught is not even illuminated here. But then he turns to the real issue in verse 19. When he says, did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you looking for an opportunity to kill me? What does he mean here? Well, the law says, in case you don't know, in Exodus 20, 13, you shall not what? Murder. You can't just go around killing people. That's what the law says. But they desire to execute Jesus, an innocent man, simply for healing another man who needed to be healed. Now, when he says this, they lose their minds, okay? And I I can't even communicate it with the intensity that, that it's communicated in the language here. They lose their minds in verse 20, and they answered, you have a demon. What an accusation. Listen, next time you get in a fight with your spouse, if you're losing, just yell at her, you have a demon. Now, you might get kicked out of the house, but you'll win the argument. <laughs> I've tried this, it works temporarily. <laughs> then there's a whole lot of repentance and formal charges if you're an elder, you don't wanna get bothered with it. Um, <laughs> I don't have time. Uh, <laughs> so they yell out, you have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? Question mark. And Jesus responds, verse 21, I performed one work, and you all are astonished. Moses gave you circumcision. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath in order that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I healed a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Now, here's what's going on. And I only got a brief minute for a history lesson. So there were two laws competing on the eighth day for Jews, okay? The Sabbath law, which said, don't work. And the circumcision law, which says on the eighth day, you take a little Jewish baby (laughs) and you go Zorro. All right. So you got two competing laws here. And they regularly broke the Sabbath law to maintain the circumcision law. Jesus, because he's awesome, brilliant, said, so... So circumcision is seen as a right that brings wholeness. And you do it to keep the law, but you break the law, of the Sabbath. I go by the pool of Bethesda, heal a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, bring him what? Wholeness. And now you're mad at me? Why are they so angry? Because he's undoing their religion. And they can't handle it. He is peeling apart their religion, and they don't know what to do with them, with him. Because Jesus is not doing things the way that they desire him do things. They're hostile. They're hostile. Now, moments ago I told you that the second time my wife got diagnosed with MS, that she handled it with grace and gospel maturity. And I said that I didn't do the same. No, I got mad. I got mad with God. I got mad because we believed that that God had healed my wife. And now I'm standing there like, "So, so, so you heal people and then you unheal them? What kind of capricious God are you? I got angry. And I got hostile. And underneath my anger and underneath my hostility was one thought. God, you're not being God the way I want you to be God be God the way I want you to be God, then I will trust you as God. And that's what's happening here. Jesus says, I'm God in chapter five, and then he starts showing them what God is like, but they don't like how God looks through Jesus. He's not being God the way they want him to be God. He's undoing their religion. And so it produces hostility. It produces hostility. Do you see this now? I know we covered a lot. I know we covered a lot, but but I need you to see this, that, that every one of us struggles with some form of unbelief. Every one of us. Some of you want God to be spectacular. You want him to be amazing. You want him to be awesome. You want him to be phenomenal. And when you feel that he is, your belief is in full force. Some of you are living faith on opinions. So at the end of the day, it's not faith at all. Because you know of Jesus, but you don't really know him. And then some of us, we're just mad. Be honest with yourself. You're just mad. You're mad because you lost a loved one. And you don't understand why God would let them die. You are mad because you lost your job. And you don't understand why God would let you lose your job. You're mad because you lost a spouse. You're mad because your child won't serve Jesus. You're just mad because God is not running the world the way you think he should run the world. Let's be honest. That's how unbelief is manifesting. So what do we do with it? What do we do with it? Where, where's the good news here? Well, here's the good news. And I said it at the beginning, I'm going to repeat it now. Jesus is not caught off guard by your unbelief. Jesus is not taken aback by your unbelief. As a matter of fact, guess what? God preempted your unbelief by sending his son to die on the cross in your place for your sin. So that when you struggled with unbelief, you could believe the gospel again and rebelieve that God is good. He's not taken aback by it. He's not taken off guard by it. Let me tell you something. Pray honestly, because God already knows. I used to think some crazy things, and and I'd be like, well, you know what? I can't tell God that I'm mad at him, because then he'll be mad at me. He's God. He already knows you're mad at him. It's so insane how ridiculous we are. Pray that prayer. How dare you, God, take my job from me? He knows you're thinking it, but here's how you follow it up. But Help me believe that you're still good. Help me believe that you still love me. Help me believe that you're still merciful. Help me believe that you still desire the best for me. You don't have to be spectacular. Just be yourself. I don't want to be confused. Reveal yourself. I don't want to be angry. Show me how you love. Because the root of our unbelief is not knowing God. The root of our unbelief, at the end of the day, is God be God the way I want you to be God. So how do we combat that? I'm going to give you one thing to do, one way to respond. I want you to spend this week preaching the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Don't don't wait for Sunday morning. Don't wait for your discipleship group. Don't wait for that friend that you call before you pray to ask for advice. Preach the gospel to yourself. When unbelief rears its head, preach the gospel to yourself. When unbelief shows its face, when you expect God to be spectacular, when you're confused about his intentions, when you're skeptical about his desires, when you're hostile about how he's responded, preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the good news that Jesus has absorbed your unbelief in his goodness and his mercy and his righteousness, and all of it is yours in him. Preach the gospel to yourself. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I know that could seem strange. But I want you to step out on the limb and try it. There's nothing worse than an uninformed agnostic. Step out on the limb and try it. Preach the gospel to yourself. And I promise you, I promise you, if you preach the gospel to yourself, it will undo your unbelief. Unbelief is underneath every single issue we have with God. Unbelief is underneath every single issue we have with God but Jesus is prepared to meet our unbelief with hope and grace and mercy. Preach the gospel to yourself so that you may re-believe so that unbelief is cast far from you and you see that God is good in all things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, for the good news of the gospel, for the freedom in the spirit. Father God, I pray this morning that we would believe you are good that you are god and that you love us and i pray that that truth will submit to our hearts in christ's name amen
0: you've been listening to the perimeter church podcast perimeter church is located at the corner of highway 141 and old alabama road in johns creek georgia please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.